Good and gracious God, would you come and be with us this morning as we hear from your word, that it would be your word preached, not Austin's, that you would reveal yourself to us in a new and deeper way. God, that our ears would be open to hear and our hearts would be open to receive. And that we would know that we do not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so you have given us your word as a means by which we may know you so that we can come to you and let you know us. We love you, God. Receive your glory this morning in the hearing of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we prepare to hear the word this morning, I actually have one more announcement that I forgot to announce that... um, uh, Pat would not be happy if I did not make the announcement. The annual meeting is next Sunday after worship. Uh, there's a little slip in your bulletin. And so uh, please join us for that meeting. We're going to be going over the annual report uh, for all of you to see and look at and to have a copy for yourselves. Uh, it's just the state of the church from last year, uh, as well as what that might indicate for us going into next year. And so it's exciting stuff. And you'll see some big, bold numbers and You also have uh, appendixed reports from each of the ministry teams of the church. And so uh, please make sure that you stay after worship next Sunday for the annual meeting. Well, we've started this new series here uh, during the season of Lent. A series where we're going through the seven last sayings of Jesus Christ on the cross. There are these moments that Jesus had that in his final breaths he had a few things to say, a few things to leave his people. And the first one that we went over was, in fact, and you heard it in the anthem today, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. A moment of Jesus interceding on the behalf of both Jew and Gentile alike who nailed him to the cross and he offered them an opportunity of absolution, of atonement, of forgiveness. What an incredible thing that Jesus extends to us. We also saw how that that moment was also a revelation of a prophetic fulfillment from the Old Testament. The Old Testament told us in Isaiah that Jesus would be numbered among transgressors and that he would make intercession for them. And he did just that. But then last week we went a little forward in his time on the cross, and we saw this moment where two criminals hung beside him. And Jesus, after one of the criminals said to Jesus, remember me as you come into your kingdom, Jesus said, surely I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise And the way that we looked at that scripture and we heard the testimony was that this criminal, in his last moments, in his dying breaths, repented before Jesus. In fact, we even said 
the prayer that Jesus made for them to be forgiven was immediately answered by the criminal that hung next to him. The intercession that Jesus made for transgressors, a transgressor responded. Then he repented and he allowed himself to be known by Jesus, the fullness of who he was. He realized, I am a criminal. I deserve, as I hang on this cross, I deserve what I'm receiving. But Jesus, you don't deserve this. And Jesus said, surely I tell you today, I know you and you know me and you will be with me in paradise. And we talked about how this is a call for each and every one of us to not just know God, but to allow ourselves to be known by him. An opportunity for each of us to draw close to God and reveal all that we are. Lay it on the table. You see, He does know us. Sovereignly, he knows everything about us. There is nothing that is apart from his sight. He sees and knows all. But he also invites us to allow ourselves to be known, to actually share ourselves with him, to not simply assume that he knows it all, but to actually be in relationship with him by letting us be known to him and him be known to us. But then we find ourselves in our passage this morning, and it's John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. So you have your Bibles with you. You can go ahead and open to that passage in John chapter 19. But in this passage what we see is another moment where Jesus has something to say on the cross. Verse 25 through 27. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his home. You know, I love how this passage actually opens. It's a very stark contrast. It begins by telling us, therefore, the soldiers did these things. But in order to know what those things are, you actually have to go back a verse. And it says, and so they said to one another, let us not tear it, talking about his garments, but let's let's cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was in order that the scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. All right, well, I find it interesting that they decided to move that to uh, another verse because verses weren't actually put in Scripture at all. Um, They were added later so that we could have easy division to be able to see Scripture and be able to get to places very quickly uh, when we were preaching the Word of God, right? And there was an opportunity for us to say, hey, this is where we need to turn to so that we can see it. 
But I find it interesting that the, the numbering system, it was put right there at the, therefore, the soldiers did these things. And I think that it was intentional. It's an opportunity for us to see a stark contrast. A contrast between these soldiers who, by all accounts, are so heartless. This man is dying on the cross. And what are they arguing about? Who gets to keep his clothes? Who gets to keep the garments of Jesus? More than anything, what they want is his tunic. And that's what they're costing, casting lots for is it's really nice and they want it and they don't want to divide it into four pieces so that these four soldiers can each get a piece. They want to cast lots so that one of them can keep the entire thing. And so they casted lots. And what I love about it too is that it demonstrates again a fulfillment of Scripture. It demonstrates a fulfillment of Scripture. John even says that this was in order that the Scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's actually interesting. I think that the therefore actually signifies that almost in a sovereign way, God orchestrated it that they had to cast lots. They did these things because a prophecy had to be fulfilled. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. And we've already talked about so many times how Jesus' death on the cross, this moment, there are so many things that are fulfilled in the Old Testament. And this is just another example. But again, the reason I think that it's stuck in this verse and not the previous is because it's meant to stand in contrast. You have these four soldiers who are fighting over the garments of Jesus who seem completely heartless at the foot of the cross as a man hangs there dying, struggling for every breath. And it stands in contrast to four others. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women drawn near to the foot of the cross. It's not that these are just any women. These are women that stand in contrast to the heartless men. These are heartful women who see Jesus hanging there broken to see the one that they loved broken. I think a better way to see this is that these women were disciples of Jesus. They might not have been named among the 12 men, but they certainly followed him. They certainly knew who he was. Why else would they risk coming so close to Christ? There were soldiers all around. In fact, the other Gospels tell us that everybody that came to the cross that knew who Jesus was, they were standing at a distance. They were standing far off. They weren't nearby. But at some point in the evening, as Jesus hung there, these four decided, I'm going to get closer. I'm going to get near. Even with the soldiers at guard, we're going to get close 
to the one that we love. They had to have the courage. Not just courage because of the soldiers, but courage to witness and be close to someone you love so much, drawing their last breath. Some of us have been with our loved ones as they drew their last. And in a way, it takes some courage to be with them, to be by their side, but you wouldn't have it any other way because of the great love that you have for them in your heart. These women, they're no different. There's something about discipleship, about knowing Jesus and being known by him so much that you would risk closeness. You would risk people, onlookers, watching as you get close to him, even as he hangs on the cross. We just allow ourselves to step into that moment. What would it be like for us to experience the cross of Christ? What would it be like if we stepped in to Mary's shoes, any of them, because they seem to all be named Mary? What would it be like for us to step into Mary's shoes and realize that all of our sin was placed upon him in that moment. And to actually feel the weight of the work that he did as he struggled for every single breath. Because crucifixion is actually suffocation. It's not the nails being driven in your hands or the nails being in your feet or the crown of thorns upon Jesus' head that kills him. It's that he suffocates to death. And so breathing is hard, nonetheless speaking. And yet in this, we see the glorious work of Jesus to redeem and forgive us of all of our sin. In fact, First Peter in verse 18 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It was poured out for you, for me, for all of us on the cross that that is the work that is done in Jesus. And so to stand at the foot of that and to witness its power, we have to allow ourselves as followers to feel the weight of what it is that Christ did in this moment. But here's the amazing part of all of this. As we draw near to the crucified Christ and see our sin on that cross, Jesus does something inconceivable. He has immense compassion, immense compassion on those that have gathered close. It says in verse 
26, that when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he took his deep a breath as he could muster as he pushed himself up to say to his mother, woman, behold your son. Behold your son. Jesus takes this moment to have a deep and abiding compassion on his mother who who helped raise him, but knowing that she was raising him to die, here, Jesus hangs on the cross and looks at her and says, my one last act as your son is to make sure that you are taken care of. Behold, your son. And he wasn't speaking about himself in that moment. The son to which he referred was the disciple whom he loved. It was John. John who also stood near the cross with these four women was to be her son. Before we get too far into this, I want, us to, I want to take us back to last week. And one of the things that I said at the very end is that I give you permission to be selfish about one thing in your life. You have permission from me, your pastor, to be selfish about one thing. And that's your relationship with God. That's your relationship with, with Jesus. I said, do not let anyone take it from you, hinder you from it. Don't let anything get in the way of it. Go after it with everything that you are. Be selfish about your relationship with Jesus. And today I want you to hear this. That your selfishness to be with God will lead to selflessness with others. The more selfish you are in your relationship to God will beget more selflessness in your relationship with others. And now I want to show you how that actually comes to be. I don't want to just say it, but I want to show it. I want to demonstrate how this passage is literally a demonstration of how selfish how these disciples of Jesus were so willing to do anything for the relationship with him, to be close with him, that it allowed them to be selfless with one another. First and foremost, we see it with Jesus' mother. He doesn't just look on her and say, hey, I want to make sure you're taken care of. He's also saying, hey, I want to give you new responsibility." This is now your son. Behold. Your son now stands next to you. Jesus actually, I think, preached extensively throughout the Gospels that our relationship to him was so important that it might cost us our family, our friends, our coworkers people that were close to us. In fact, I'll just read from Matthew 
chapter 19, verse 29 says this. These are Jesus' words. He says, And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms... So whether you are leaving your siblings, you are leaving your your parents, you are leaving your children, or you're leaving your livelihood, for my name's sake, all for Jesus, he's calling us into a life of living that says, I might have to leave everything behind for his name's sake, but those that do will receive 100 times as much. 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. That's a bold statement. That's a bold thing for Jesus to say, I am asking you to give everything up. There's the possibility that you might have to leave father and mother and children and farm and life behind for me. But I promise you, if you do so, you will receive so much more. And for his mother, for his namesake coming to the cross, at the foot of the cross, he says, hey, I know that you're losing me, but here's a son. Here's a son for you to love, to take care of, but also who will love and take care of you, as we'll see in a little bit. Woman, behold your son. What a gift to Mary in that moment of having to witness Jesus die on the cross. But I wonder, what does that mean for us in the church? I mean, you know, it's, we're an aging congregation. We have a lot of people whose, whose families are out of their homes at this point. But what does it look like to be a part of the body of Christ, to be part of of the church of Jesus and say, okay, what is my responsibility now? Well, who is Jesus saying to you, behold your son? I think there's a wonderful opportunity. In fact, I've seen it in my own life as a testimony to you all, how much y'all have loved me. How many of you have said, oh, you're just my grandson, and I'm your grandmother. Doesn't anyone that know, know that if they mess with you, they mess with all of us? Right? We consider ourselves family. I've received it a hundredfold. I've received it a hundredfold to be a part of what God is doing right here. To follow Jesus to Griffin, Georgia. What a gift. But what would it look like if I wasn't the only person that you applied that mentality to, but every single young person that walked through this door, Jesus was saying to you, behold your daughter, behold your son, behold your grandson, if that's how you want to think of it, behold your granddaughter, somebody that Jesus has brought into our church, an opportunity for you to say, how can I surround you and love you as I would love one of my own? What a deep and abiding call for us as a church because we were so selfish in our relationship with Jesus that he gave us the opportunity to be selfless 
with everyone that he sends through our doors. What would it look like if we were that kind of church? Where we considered everybody that came to us, our son or our daughter, and we would not let them leave until they knew so. Even on their first visit, we surrounded them and loved them like they were our very own. But I don't want to just put all the burden on all of our spiritual parents that could exist, but there's also a burden on the spiritual child, right? Because he didn't just say, behold, woman, your son. Then he goes on and says, and then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. From the hour the disciple took her, from that hour the disciple took her into his home. Ultimately, what we're seeing here is it's mutual care for one another. It's mutual care for every single person that even comes close to drawing near to the cross of Christ. Anyone that has the opportunity to hear about Jesus is somebody that we have the opportunity to care for as we also have been cared for by him. Every single person is about mutual care. Jesus turned to John and said, Behold your mother. It is not one-sided. It is that both have a role to play. Actually, as we read that passage, who's the one that brought them into their home? The disciple. The disciple, John, brought Mary into his home to be his mother, not the other way around. Now, historically speaking, I do want to put that in some historical context, It's because Mary wouldn't have had a place to call her own. Women weren't allowed at that time to own their own property, to have their own spaces. They had to be under the care of either a husband or under one of their male children, one of the heirs, should that happen. But here's the interesting thing. We know Jesus had brothers. Jesus' brothers were James and Jude. And yet, Jesus didn't leave his mother in the care of them. He left them in the care of one of his disciples. Because, again, Jesus might be calling us to leave mother, child, whoever behind in order to go after him. But what does that then look like? It looks like caring for one another in a way that those that we left would see what we have received instead because we chose Christ. And that they might also desire the same thing. Because ultimately, what do we learn as we turn through the pages of Scripture? That James and Jude ended up receiving Jesus as their Lord. They also received him and believed him to be who he said he was. And so mutual care for one another, right? I mean, they will know we are Christians by our love. By our love, by our care, by our charity, by our generosity toward each other. But I want to go back to that historical context. 
Because it's not just about the fact that Jesus' mother needed somebody. The call is that Jesus wants us to be responsible to care for the most vulnerable in our community. In fact, we've heard it here before. We've heard um, many times, actually, uh, from James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. To visit widows and orphans. That's not a claim to only be widows and orphans. It's supposed to cover every age group from the oldest that might be widowed to the youngest that might be orphaned. Anyone in between that is vulnerable, that is outcast, that is ostracized, that is marginalized, that is the one that you don't want, Jesus wants. And so when Jesus gave the command to his disciple, his beloved disciple, to care for his mother is because his mother was among the vulnerable. We have a responsibility to be about the vulnerable, to care for them, to love them, and to show them the way to Jesus. It doesn't matter the age. Lastly, in that verse, it says it was from that hour that the disciple took her in. I just want to talk about the immediacy of that. Jesus didn't tell John to take his mother in, and then John's like, oh, well, let me get my affairs in order. Let me make sure that the room is set up in time. Well, let me make sure that I know my scripture well enough before I decide that I'm going to care for them, love them, share the gospel with them. Let me make sure that I've done all these other things first. No, 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 no. That's not, he just wants you to, care for people, to love people. He wants you to respond in obedience right when he says it. Don't wait days or months. When you know somebody's in need, try to meet it right then. You have to listen and follow, not simply listen and wait. Unless he's calling you to listen and wait, and then you should probably do that. But many times he's calling us to immediate obedience. I think that brings us back again to this one phrase that I want us to hang on to, that selfishness for your relationship with God begets selflessness in your relationship to others. In fact, Matthew chapter 22, we all know this passage. We've all heard it a thousand million times. But I think it gets to this better than anything. And Jesus said to them when he was pressed about what the greatest commandment was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with everything that you are, with your entire being, 
Go after God. Be in relationship with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is the first commandment, and it is the greatest commandment, and it is the foremost commandment. There is no other commandment that is more important than loving God with all that you are. Be selfish in your relationship with him. In your body, in your soul, and in your mind, your thoughts should be about him, your prayers should be with him, and your body should be a temple that worships him. But then he says the second is like it. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can only love your neighbor as yourself when you have learned to love God. When you have learned to be selfish in your relationship with him, then you will learn to be selfless in your relationship to others, to your neighbor. Whoever that might be, the vulnerable, the young, any generation that walks through that door, how is God calling us to love them and care for them as our children and as our mother? And not only will you be able to love others selflessly, you'll actually want to. Again, the more selfish you are with God, the more he makes you like him, which makes you want to be selfless in your life for other people. You want to start giving up the things that are your preference so that the other person might be able to receive Jesus more and more and more. I'm going to end us here in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21, which we recently heard uh, during our blessing service, our Kirkin of the Tartan service, where every family received this blessing. But it's not just a blessing for families, it's a prayer to strengthen us. In our moments of doubt, hear this prayer from Paul. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being firmly rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Wow. In those moments that you become selfish and you receive the fullness of what God has to offer in his riches, in his glory, and in his power, what more could you be capable of in your relationship to people around you? When God has filled you up like that, everything is possible because everything in him is possible. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you so much for the work that you are doing in us and through us for the love that you are pouring out, but also for the commands that you have given us even as you hung on the cross that we should behold our sons and our daughters 
And others of us should behold our mothers and our fathers, whether they are by blood or by spirit. We thank you. And we ask that we would be able to love better, care better, and be more selfless to them as we become more selfish for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.